السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا أما بعد I remember I was in the city of Edmonton a couple of weeks ago and we were doing like a promo event for a class coming up just by show of hands how many people are from Edmonton here Edmonton people are here <laughs> and just interestingly enough the same people that are coming in you can put your hands down so while I was doing the event uh, you know the room's already full it's the free Friday and it just seemed like you know it's like one bus load after another people are walking in you know one after another and then right now there's like brothers can't see this so don't turn your heads anyways there's like a whole like truckload of sisters that just came in as well and that moment just re-ran through my head subhanallah so last night after um, Sheikh Muhammad's talk you know it got me thinking about the concept of being a man and the concept of having role models for the youth and I really reflected on that point and one point that he mentioned is that a lot of the youth these days and I guess you know you could say for the longest time have been taking athletes and um, you know people who participate in sports as their role models and people who they follow and emulate and this becomes quite disturbing it really becomes quite disturbing because if you look at some of the role models and some of the athletes and what they're up to these days uh, you know yesterday uh, Sheikh Mohammed mentioned Kobe Bryant I remember you know when I was teaching at the Sunday school you ask the kids you know who's your favorite basketball player and they're saying Kobe Bryant now for those of you who don't know the details Kobe Bryant you know possibly and arguably is one of the best basketball players playing right now I know Michael Jordan is still better of course but that's besides the point but the point being, you know, even an individual like Kobe Bryant, if you look at some of the things that he's been through, like he was accused of, uh, you know, statutory rape, he was accused of, uh, you know, um, being unfaithful to his wife, and things like that. Youth taking these sorts of individuals as role models, you know, what do you expect them to pick up from those type of people? And then, you know, I was thinking like even guys like Tiger Woods, you know, up for the longest time, he was like Mr. Nice Guy in sports, never did anything wrong. He was intelligent, he played really well, he had sportsmanship, very confident. And then you look at him now, and you know, he's like an individual who has to go through rehab, not for drugs, not for alcohol, but for like another form of abuse, which is just absolutely terrible. And I really contemplated this fact, and I was like, subhanAllah. You know, as Muslims, we have this shortcoming that we have the greatest role models that have ever existed. But our shortfalling or shortcoming falls into the fact that we don't introduce the people to these role models. And at that point, I really thanked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that this workshop and this seminar is taking place. This seminar known as may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be pleased with them radiallahu anhum will probably one of the most, be one of the most life-changing experiences for all of you. You know, rather than learning about who, how many points someone scored or, you know, where they went to, to college and played basketball and so on and so, on and so forth, you're studying the individuals whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said He was pleased with them. You're studying the individuals, some of which, you know, were guaranteed paradise while they were still alive. These individuals, if you were to emulate them, you have pretty much guaranteed your path to paradise. So I thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for that opportunity. And I thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that I'm here right now being able to share the best of those individuals. You know, a lot of the times, speakers, they don't like to be the first speaker in the morning. And you can see why. 
Because, you know, people are still waking up. People are still coming into the lecture hall. People are going to be late. They don't like that to happen during that lecture, their lectures. But for me specifically, I wasn't too concerned about the audience. I was like, inshallah, whoever shows up, I can tell these people are going to be dedicated and they're really going to appreciate what I have to say. And they're going to be here to listen about the best individual that has come on this planet after the prophets and messengers of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So keeping that in mind, I want you to stay focused in this lecture and I'm going to give you a small introduction to the lecture. Today, bithinillahi ta'ala, the first part of this seminar is going to be about the khulafa of the Prophet wasallam. Those people who stepped up as the leaders of Islam after the Prophet wasallam. And you individuals right now in this room, you're no longer the average layman, but rather you have now officially become students of knowledge. And there are certain things that are expected from the student of knowledge, which I want to share with you right now. Right now when you have become a student of knowledge, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has raised your status above the rest of mankind. And you have to manifest that in your actions and in your attitude. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Mujadalah, يَرْفَعِ اللَّهُ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا مِنْكُمْ وَالَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْعِلْمَ دَرَجَاتِ That indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has raised in status and in rank from amongst you those who have been granted iman and those who have been granted knowledge. And bithinillahi ta'ala, all of you here today will fulfill both of those qualifications. So that is something to keep in mind. Now being a student of knowledge, you will want to write down everything that is being said. Right now you're not here to be moved just as a lecture, but rather you're here to take notes. And what you particularly want to focus on are those points that will relate to you and those points that you can implement in your life. Historical information is just as important and as good as much of it as you can implement in your life. As for in terms of knowing dates and in knowing names of individuals, that will not benefit you in the slightest up and until you can do something about it and um, implement it in your daily lives. So that is what I want you to focus on bi'idnillahi ta'ala. Point number two is in terms of an introduction to this seminar, we're talking about the most noble and elite people that have come on this planet. And you will be discussing issues which are very sensitive in nature. It is a fitna that happened during the time of the companions radiallahu anhum. And particularly when you get into the stories of Uthman and Ali radiallahu anhum, you'll want to keep this in mind. Ibn Taymiyyah, one of the great scholars of Islam, he said that the fitna that happened in their time, it is a fitna that our swords were saved from, so let our tongues be saved from it as well. Meaning when we come to talk about Uthman and Ali, things happen during their time, a lot of people don't understand the reality of it. But inshallah, the speakers that are coming, they're going to do justice to their topics. And this is just an introduction to the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, that each and every one of them, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is pleased with. If they met the Prophet ﷺ in a state of Islam and they died that way, then know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is pleased with them. And know that bi'ithnillahi ta'ala, they are going to paradise. So they are guaranteed something which we are not guaranteed in this room right now. So please keep that in mind. Just to give you two examples of this, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Tawbah in ayah number 100, السابقون الأولون من المحاجرين والأنصار والذين اتبعوهم بإحسان رضي الله عنهم ورضوا عنه This is very important to understand my dear brothers and sisters. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says السابقون الأولون That the predecessors and those who came first. 
من المهاجرين والأنصار from those people who were the companions of Mecca and those people who were the companions of of Medina and those who follow them in righteousness inshallah us included in them Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is pleased with them and they are pleased with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala meaning in this ayah Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has included and incorporated every single companion of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam that he is pleased with them point number 2 just to emphasize this very fact as to how great their status in Islam actually is, the Prophet ﷺ said, By Allah, swearing by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, by Allah, if any individual was to give gold the size of a, of a Mount Uhud in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, gold the size of Mount Uhud. We're talking about, you know, a nine kilometer radius of mountains. That amount of gold in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they would still not be equivalent or even come close to becoming equal to the companions of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Meaning that you could dedicate your whole life to Islam right now, give everything that you have, and you would still not be equal to their footsteps or to their feet or any other parts of the companions of the Allahu anhum. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given them this noble status and it is our responsibility as Muslims, as a part of our creed and our faith that we give them this veneration and this respect that they deserve. Now with that having been said, we go on to Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala an, the Khalifa of the Prophet sallallahu When I was thinking about this topic and how I want to approach it, I thought, you know, 50 minutes is a lot of time to share someone's biography. And then I started preparing my notes, and it's like, you know, I've covered his birth, and I was like, okay, we have 30 minutes of material here right now. What do I do for the next 20 minutes? So I really had to, you know, chunk down a lot of the stuff I wanted to talk about. And that's why, bithinahi ta'ala, I'm going to try to focus more on the lessons that we can derive from his life and from his khilafah, rather than trying to share too many historical points of benefit. The historical points of benefit you yourselves can look up uh, in books pertaining to the life of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. But in terms of the morals and lessons, you know, they might not be easy for everyone to, dis- uh, to extract and to derive. So that is what I wanted to focus on. Now when it comes into the lives of virtuous people, the likes of Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu, you will see that in every moment of their lives, there is a point of benefit that you can derive. There is a point of benefit that you can derive. So starting off firstly with Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu's actually actual name. Yesterday, Shaykh Muhammad, he mentioned that there is this concept of kunya in Arabic culture, that a title or a pet name that individuals are given and are summoned by. And Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu, this was actually one of his surnames, pet names or pseudonames, I guess you could call it. His real name in fact was not Abu Bakr. But rather before Islam, Abu Bakr was known as Abdul Ka'bah. He was known as the servant of the Kaaba, And when he accepted Islam, he and, he, and the Prophet wasallam knew of this, he changed uh, Abu Bakr's name to Abdullah. So once he accepted Islam, his name was changed to Abdullah. And if you look at his lineage, you'll see that there's something very particular about his lineage. Just to mention a couple of things, his complete name was Abdullah ibn Uthman ibn Amr ibn Amr al-Qurashi. So his father's name was Uthman, his grandfather was Amr, and his great-grandfather was Amr. Now all of these individuals had a noble status in the Quraysh tribe. And his father, um, Uthman, 
Actually, we'll get to him in a second, Ta'ala. So that was his name and his lineage. And he actually was born two and a half years after the Prophet So the Prophet was born at what was known as Amul Fil, or the year of the elephant. When the Kaaba was being attacked by Abraha, you know, back in the day, they didn't have, you know, uh, a system for numbering the years. But rather, any main event or major event that took place in history, that is what the year would be remembered by. So the year that the Prophet ﷺ was born in was known as Amul Fil, or the year that the elephant came and uh, it was attempted to destroy the Kaaba. Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala was born two and a half years after that event. So he was younger to the Prophet ﷺ. And in terms of his physical characteristics, Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala was known to be someone who was very white in complexion, someone who was very skinny, yet he had this presence that demanded respect when he walked into a room. You know, a lot of the times you see like these really skinny, scrawny individuals, and they'll seem like they're lacking confidence. I don't know if you remember what Shaykh Muhammad was talking about yesterday, where like the youth in like high school today, if you like hit their arm, they just like waggle down. That's what happens to a lot of people who are like really skinny and out of shape and you know don't care. But Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala, even though he was really skinny, he was an individual who demanded respect by his presence. He walked very confidently, walked like a man, very, you know, um, boasting of his confidence. Now it was mentioned that Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala was actually a hunchback, meaning that his back would slightly tilt over and this actually became problematic. There was a famous hadith where the Prophet ﷺ talked about how a man's garments should not go below his ankles. And the Prophet ﷺ mentioned that whatever is below the ankles would be in the hellfire. And Abu Bakr ta'ala, when he heard of this, he said, Ya Rasulullah, you know, I'm unable to control this point. Meaning that I wear my garment, I try to keep it above my ankles, but you know, due to my hunchback, the garment always goes down. And the Prophet ﷺ went to tell him that, Ya Abu Bakr, you're not one of those individuals whose pride uh, is, is feared from. Meaning that you're not an individual who has arrogance or pride in him. So that very point that he was a hunchback actually caused problems for him at certain times. But still Abu Bakr ta'ala who even with that was one of the most revered companions of the Prophet ﷺ. So now talking a bit about his father. His father we mentioned was Uthman. And Uthman likewise had a kunya as well. His kunya was Abu Quhafa. That is what a lot of people know him as, as Abu Quhafa. And what was interesting about Abu Quhafa was the very fact that even though Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu had accepted Islam, Abu Quhafa did not go and accept Islam up and until the opening of Mecca. Meaning Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu has been with the Prophet sallallahu for you know, about 22 years now. And 22 years later of giving da'wah, that is when his father actually accepted Islam, when Mecca opened up. Now, when this happened, when he accepted Islam, there was a very beautiful incident that took place. And this shows you the level of respect the Prophet ﷺ had for the elders. So Abu Quhafa accepted Islam, and he came with Abu Bakr to the Prophet ﷺ. And Abu Bakr tells the Prophet ﷺ, Ya Rasulullah, this is my father, alhamdulillah, today he has accepted Islam. And listen to the response of the Prophet ﷺ. He said, Ya Abu Bakr, only if you had told me in advance so that I could have gone to see him. Only if you had told me in advance so that I could go to see him. 
And this shows you again that the Prophet ﷺ, as busy as he was in his schedule, he took time out for two things. One, for his close companions, and two, for the elders in the community. So for his close companions, he gave them special time, gave them special privileges. And when it came to the elders in the community, he would actually want to be the one to go and see them, rather than they coming to see him. And this is why the Prophet ﷺ said that he is not from us. He who does not show the rights of the elders and does not have mercy upon the youth. And the Prophet ﷺ actually went on to manifest this. As for the mother of Abu Bakr her name was Salma bint Sakhar. And she had the kunya of Ummul Khair. She had the kunya of Ummul Khair. Now unlike the father of Abu Bakr, she actually accepted Islam very early on. She accepted Islam very early on. And this shows you something very crucial. You know, in our times, we like to mock those men, inshallah, that have very close relationships with their mothers. You know, we like to call them mama's boys. You know, they're individuals who are spoiled, and you know, their moms take care of them. This was sort of the relationship that Abu Bakr radiallahu anh had with his mother. He was a mama's boy. But at the same time, he was a man at the same time. So when it came time to giving da'wah, that is what he gave precedence to, to his mother. He knew that he had that close relationship already, and that his mother trusted him, and that is why as soon as he accepted Islam, one of the first individuals that he went to was to his mother. Because he knew he had that special relationship that she would accept Islam right away. In terms of the other family that Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu had, throughout his life, he got married four times. Meaning throughout his life, he, had, he got married four times. And from those four wives, there are two of them in particular that you would want to familiarize yourselves with. There are two of them in particular that you would want to familiarize yourselves with. The first one was Qatila. Her name was Qatila. And the second one was Umruman. The second one was Umruman. As for Qatila, she was the mother of two of his children. Two of them being Abdullah and Asma. Two of them being Abdullah and Asma. As for Umm Ruman, she was the mother of Aisha radiallahu anha and the mother of Abdurrahman. She was the mother of Aisha radiallahu anha and Abdurrahman. As for Qatila, the scholars have actually differed. Did she accept Islam or not? Did she accept Islam or not? Because before the Prophet ﷺ came with his message, Abu Bakr had already divorced her. Abu Bakr had already divorced her, and it is not really known what happened after that. There is only one incident recorded after that time uh, where she is brought back into the scenario, I guess you could say, and that was when she came to visit her daughter Asma. She came to visit her daughter Asma, and she asked the Prophet ﷺ, Ya Rasulullah, my mother, who is a non-Muslim, is coming to visit me. Should I treat her with honor and respect and treat her as a guest of mine? Or should I have this um, form of separation and lack of allegiance towards her? And the Prophet ﷺ said that the very fact that she is your mother, she should be honored and respected and nobilized as a guest. So it is not known if she actually accepted Islam and the scholars differed over this. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best, but it seems that she did not accept Islam. As for the second wife of his, Umm Ruman, she was the mother of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, and she was probably the most beloved wife of Abu Bakr. 
She was probably the most beloved wife of Abu Bakr. And she accepted Islam with Abu Bakr or shortly thereafter. And he was, she was the wife that Abu Bakr ta'ala spent the most out, uh, amount of time with. Now just to give you a small introduction to his children before we move on to his virtues and the lessons that we can derive. When you get to his children, subhanAllah, you see something even more particular. That good fathers and good parents, they will produce good children. And you will see that in the lives of each of his children, there's a lesson and a moral that could be learnt. So starting off with the most eldest of his children, uh, or I guess the most eldest of the sons, and that is Abdurrahman. Abdurrahman was the eldest of all of Abu Bakr's sons, and he had three sons and three daughters. So we'll give a brief introduction to all of them, bi'ithnillahi ta'ala. Abdurrahman, the son of Abu Bakr, he accepted Islam after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, roughly around the eighth year of the Hijrah. And a very interesting um, conflict or scenario took place during the Battle of Badr. During the Battle of Badr. Now the Battle of Badr, when it took place, the Ansar, or the people of Medina, you know, they've been embargoed by the Quraysh and the people around them. No one's trading with them. Their money and wealth has been stolen because they migrated from Mecca and a lot of problems are happening. So Battle of Badr comes about and this is the first time that the, the immigrants of Mecca are now meeting again with the Quraysh. And from those immigrants of Mecca was Abdurrahman, the son of Abu Bakr. And Abu Bakr is in the battlefield with, um, with the Muslims. So now imagine this, that your very son is in front of you. Obviously in the battlefield you want to try to avoid your own family member, you don't want to harm your own family member. But a time came when exactly that happened. Abdurrahman was faced with Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. And Abdurrahman, being in a state of other than Islam, he still had this mercy and conscience in his heart that even though they're on the battlefield, Abu Bakr is under his sword. He has the chance to harm him. And he says, oh my father, you are under my sword, but I just can't find it in me to harm you or inflict any pain upon you. Now, you know, you may be thinking, oh, how sweet, you know, he cares about his father. But I want you to listen to what Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu said. He says, oh my son, had this scenario been reversed, then know that you would have been shown no mercy whatsoever. And I thought about this, subhanAllah, here's an individual who's showing mercy to his father and he's showing this compassion and kindness. But Abu Bakr radiallahu anh still had his priorities straight. That right now at that very time, it was the battlefield. It wasn't a time for compassion and mercy, but this is a time to set the playing field straight. Now at that very moment, Abu Bakr and Abdurrahman, they parted ways and they weren't seen again. But you can imagine the effect that must have had on Abdurrahman. That you know, this is what Islam is all about. That you know, the father doesn't show mercy to his son. Is that what Islam really is? So this lingered in his mind up and until the Treaty of Hudaybiyah took place. Up and until the Treaty of Hudaybiyah took place, that is when Abdurrahman accepted Islam. And when he accepted Islam, he came to Abu Bakr radiallahu anh. And you know, this thought is lingering in his mind and he's thinking that when I go to Abu Bakr, you know, he's, the first thing he's probably going to do is he's probably going to slap me around and he's like, why did it take you so long to accept Islam? But that was not the case. The second he accepted Islam, he went up to his father and his father embraced him just like the day that he was born. He showed him a level of compassion and a, a degree of love that, you know, only a father and son can realize. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created a special bond between a father and a son 
that even though they may not express their love verbally for one another, that level of veneration, that degree of compassion and love is automatically there. And he said, when I accepted Islam, it was as if the day I was just born and my father was holding me for that first time. And I could feel the love transcend from his heart into his limbs into me. It was love that did not need to be spoken, but it was a love that was being felt. Then his son Abdullah, his second son Abdullah, he was a lot more accepting of Islam. When his father accepted Islam, you know, Abdullah accepted Islam at that time as well. And he played a very pivotal role during the migration of the Muslims from Mecca to Medina. As we know, the Prophet ﷺ and Abu Bakr traveled together from Mecca to Medina. And an incident came where they were stuck in a cave for three days. They were stuck in a cave for three days. And Abdullah, the son of Abu Bakr at this time, he was the one who would be bringing food and news to the Prophet ﷺ and to Abu Bakr. So meaning that his life is literally at danger. Because the Quraysh know that, Abba, that um, Abdullah, he's the one who's going to be going to see his father and the Prophet ﷺ. So that is why in the darkest depths of the night when nothing could be seen, he would risk his life going to the cave where the Prophet ﷺ was and where Abu Bakr was and would give them news as to what was going on and would give them food. And it was mentioned that Abdullah, just due to that very incident, became the most beloved child out of all of his children, out of all the male children to Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. And this goes on to show us another lesson. That it is only normal that a parent will love and will prefer one child over another. This is something that you don't really have control over. A child that pleases you more and does more for you and sacrifices more for you, you will love them more and you will prefer them more. But even this love and this preference did not prevent Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu from doing justice. That needs to be keep in mind. Just because we have preference of one individual over another, it does not mean that we treat other people unjustly. But rather Abu Bakr treated all of his children the same. And then as for his last son, he named him Muhammad. He named his last son Muhammad. And he was the youngest of all the sons of Abu Bakr. Now interestingly enough, Muhammad was not raised in the house of Abu Bakr. Muhammad was not raised in the house of Abu Bakr. But rather Muhammad was raised in the house of Ali radiallahu ta'ala Ali radiallahu ta'ala was put in charge of his upbringing and in charge of his nurturing because Ali radiallahu anhu at that time did not have many children and he had time to take care of the legs of Muhammad. So he established a very close relationship with Ali radiallahu anhu. So much so that when Ali radiallahu anhu was choosing governors for the various lands, he actually chose Muhammad to be a governor of Egypt. He actually chose Muhammad to be a governor of Egypt. And it shows you the close relationship that Abu Bakr and Ali radiallahu anhuma actually had. So much so that he would trust his own son, he would trust Ali with his own son to take care of him and to nurture him. So this necessitates that there was a degree of respect and a degree of a close bond and relationship between the two. So those were the male children of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. Now getting to his daughters, he had three daughters. The, the first one and oldest of them being Asma. The oldest of them being Asma. Now the interesting story about Asma is that she married Zubair ibn Awam. 
she married Zubair ibn Awam. And she gave birth to the noble companion Abdullah ibn Zubair. So Zubair ibn Awam is this great warrior, this great leader of Islam. And likewise, his son Abdullah ibn Zubair became this great leader as well. Now I want you to think of something. And that is, think of the oldest individual that you know. Muslim or non-Muslim, just think of the oldest individual that you know. And you may think, okay, this individual is going bald, they've lost most of their teeth. When they speak, you know, they don't make too much sense. And you know, they're very forgetful. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed Asma, the daughter of Abu Bakr. That at the age of 100, she lived, um, you know, the longest out of all of his children. She lived past 100 years old. And it was mentioned that even at the age of 100, she was still able to narrate hadith. At the age of 100, she was still able to give guidance to the Khalifa of the Ummah at that time. At the age of 100, she was still able to perform those noble and virtuous deeds. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put something very special in the heart uh, and in the body of Asma radiallahu anh. Um, one of the authors mentioned that the reason why this was done is because Asma radiallahu anh, she paid a lot of attention as to how she was in her youth. She paid a lot of attention as to how she was in her youth. She dedicated herself to Islam, worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala throughout the day, and dedicated herself to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and his mission. And due to that dedication, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave her extra strength and extra ability in her old age. And we'll actually come back to Asma radiallahu anha in a bit. Because there was something very, very important that took place through her lineage, bi'ithnillahi ta'ala. Then we get to Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, Ummul Mu'mineen, the mother of the believers. Now Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, she deserves a lecture on her own. We mentioned yesterday the close relationship that Aisha radiallahu anha had with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, And I guess one point that just needs to be elaborated on is that there's a very controversial topic that comes to Aisha radiallahu anha. And that was the age that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam got married to her. It is said that when the contract was written, the Aqdun Nikah was written for Aisha radiallahu anha and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Aisha radiallahu anha was only six years old. And when she moved in with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, meaning they actually started to live together, she was nine years old at that time. And when it comes to Western academia and Orientalist version of Islam, this becomes a very critical and scrutinizing point. They claim that the Prophet ﷺ was a pedophile and say all sorts of terrible things. But I want you to bring you to your attention one important thing. That we know the Quraysh hated the Prophet ﷺ with a deep hatred and passion. Every single terrible and bad name they could think of, they gave to the Prophet ﷺ. They called him a crazy man, they called him a magician, they called him a poet, they called him a destroyer of homes, they called him as someone who was, you know, um, basically someone who had no mercy and compassion, and all sorts of things were said about him. But never, ever did the Quraysh call the Prophet ﷺ a pedophile or anything of that nature. And this just goes on to show you that during that time, it was customary that these things took place. Now just because our times have changed in our times, and it is no longer acceptable that you know, people get married at that age, and I agree that in our times, it's not acceptable. That people should not be getting married at the age of six and nine, because that level of maturity isn't there. That level of responsibility isn't there. But back in those days, 
This concept of being a child, it ended around that age of eight and nine. Aisha radiallahu anha, she hit puberty at that age, and she had the attributes of a woman at that time. So therefore it was acceptable. And this is why not once did the Quraysh ever refer to the Prophet ﷺ as a pedophile. So now when it comes to Aisha radiallahu anha, this becomes a pivotal point. Because as we know in terms of males that narrated hadith from the Prophet ﷺ, the individual that narrated the most hadith was Abu Huraira. He accompanied the Prophet ﷺ as much as he could. But obviously he could not go into the house of the Prophet ﷺ and narrate what took place. And this is why the scholars mention that it was of a great wisdom that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose Aisha radiallahu anha to be the wife of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Because not only was she young, so her mind was fresh, she was, un- uh, she was able to take in a lot, but she had the sharpest of memories. So when it came to those incidents that happened in the home of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and those things that happened in seclusion, that is why Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha became the wife of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam from wisdom of Allah. Because Muslims not only needed to know the public life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, but they needed to know the private life as well. Because this is a part of our life and we are told and commanded to follow the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam in each and every aspect of our lives. So there was a great wisdom that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. One last point to mention is that, you know, you'll come to see this in a little bit, but when you truly love an individual, when you're literally in love with an individual, you'll want to follow every single one of their footsteps. And if that love is true, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will actually allow that. And I want to explain how. The years that we die in are not in our control. We will never know when we are going to die. But Aisha radiallahu anha, she had this infatuation, a good infatuation with the Prophet wasallam, that everything that he did, the way he lived his life, even the way that he died, Aisha radiallahu anha wanted to die in the exact same way. And you see this, that subhanAllah, what are the chances that individuals will die in the exact same age as the Prophet wasallam? And you'll come to see that Abu Bakr radiallahu dies at the age of 63. Aisha radiallahu anha died at the age of 63. And this just goes on to show you the, when you truly love something for the sake of Allah and you, you know, emulate the way of life that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants you to emulate, that everything will fall into place, even those things that are beyond your control. And that is why Aisha radiallahu anha, that even when she died, she died at the exact same age as the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Now one last incident that took place, and this leads us into the last daughter, is before Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu passed away, he told Aisha radiallahu anha that you have another sister, you have two sisters. She said, yeah, oh my father, I know of Asma, but who is my third sister? Who is my third sister? And then Abu Bakr, he told uh, Aisha radiallahu anha that in the stomach of Habiba, who was uh, a wife of Abu Bakr, is a daughter that is about to be born. Now at that time, obviously they don't have those scans, they don't ha- they, you can't really tell what the gender is going to be. But this was something that was inspired into Abu Bakr radiallahu an, so that he could know what the gender was going to be, and that is what he told Aisha radiallahu anha. And this leads us into the third and last daughter, who was actually born after the death of Abu Bakr radiallahu an. And that was Umm Kulthum. Umm Kulthum was the last daughter of 
Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala Now, this actually becomes quite sad in the sense that this is a daughter of the greatest Khalifa in Islam that never actually got to meet her father. And subhanAllah, just because the very fact that she didn't get to meet her father, a lot of the historians actually neglected her. You know, when it comes to her biography, uh, you see like two or three lines. But when it comes to everyone else's biography from his children, you have like page after page. And when I was going through this, I'm trying to find more information, but sadly more information wasn't there. And I was like, subhanAllah, this is just like another virtue of having such a great father and being actually able to meet him. That if you had just met him, you know, pages are being written down about you. But the very fact that you didn't get to meet your father and you didn't get to meet this great companion and Khalifa of the Prophet ﷺ, it deprived you of that legacy as well. So one last point that I want to mention about his children and his lineage is that Abu Bakr anhu, we know that his lineage was blessed, that Iman was firmly ingrained in his heart and this transcended into his children as well. And he was one of about three companions altogether that four generations, four generations were companions of the Prophet ﷺ. So through Abu Bakr, four generations were companions of the Prophet ﷺ. Starting off with Uthman Abu Quhafa, the father of Abu Bakr, he accepted Islam in the Fath of Mecca. Then you have Abu Bakr, his son, who was the great companion and Khalifa of the Prophet ﷺ. Then you have Asma, who was the daughter of Abu Bakr. And then you have Abdullah ibn Zubair, who was the son of Asma. These four individuals, four generations from the lineage of Abu Bakr, and they were all companions of the Prophet ﷺ. And it shows you how if one individual dedicates himself to Islam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually goes on to bless that lineage. Just like the lineage of Ibrahim, you see that his lineage, it was filled with a lineage of prophethood. You had Ibrahim, who had Ishaq, who had Yaqub, who had Yusuf. All of them being prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it all started off with Ibrahim. Similarly over here, Abu Bakr took his Islam to the next level and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed his lineage. Now we get on to the virtues of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu and this is like the majority or was supposed to be the majority of my lecture but unfortunately there are only 12 minutes left. Subhanallah. So we're going to try to do the best that we can with this bithinlahi ta'ala. His first virtue was the very fact that he was a siddiq. He was the most truthful individual and the most accepting of the truth. And he was actually given this title when the incident of Al-Isra' wal-Mi'raj happened. Putting this incident into its proper context, back then there were no planes, there were no cars, there were no forms of quick or fast transportation that we have today. So when the Prophet ﷺ claimed that he went from Mecca to Jerusalem in one night, using this animal that traveled a really fast speed. And then he claimed that he went up and he met the prophets and that he spoke with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Quraysh belied him and they started calling the Prophet sallallahu names. And they knew that Abu Bakr had accepted Islam, so they wanted to taunt him as well. So they went up to Abu Bakr and they said, have you heard what your companion has claimed now? Have you heard, you know, the stuff that he's coming up with? And then before they, even could, they could even say what he was claiming, he said one simple statement. He said, if he has said it, then it must be the truth. If he said it, then it must be the truth. 
And this shows the level of acceptance that Abu Bakr radiallahu an had for the Prophet sallallahu and had for Islam. And this is why he was given the title As-Siddiq. Now this title of As-Siddiq is the greatest title an individual can be given after the title of prophethood. Just to give you an example, one day the Prophet ﷺ was on Mount Uhud with Abu Bakr, Umar, and Uthman. And Mount Uhud actually started to tremor and started to shake. The Prophet ﷺ, in wanting Mount Uhud to calm down and to stop shaking, he said, O Uhud, calm down and tame yourself. For indeed upon you are a prophet, is a nabi, a siddiq, and two shuhada. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's messenger sallallahu alayhi wa he called out himself as a prophet. Then he uh, distinguished Abu Bakr as a siddiq, a title that is even higher than that of a martyr. And then he said that there are two martyrs upon you as well, and they are Umar and Uthman, and bithinlahi ta'ala, you will learn about them later today. So he was called a siddiq due to how easily he accepted the message of Islam and due to how easily he was accept, uh, accepting of everything of the Prophet ﷺ and what he came with. Another virtue of Abu Bakr was the degree of his um, trustworthiness or honesty when it came to doing business. And this is something very important to understand. Muslims generally have this conception that it's not a good thing to be wealthy. That you know if you have money, if you have wealth, if you dress nicely, this is not a good thing. But if you were to look at the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, you would see three out of the ten individuals that were promised paradise were indeed wealthy and rich individuals. But what distinguished those three individuals from the wealthy and rich people of today is that today the money is in the hearts of the individuals and not in the hands, meaning that their hearts are filled with greed. But in the past, the money was in the hands and not in the heart. That if they had money, they were giving it in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they would not want to hoard it. And this was seen during the death of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. When he became the Khalifa of the Muslims, he had access to all of the wealth and he could have claimed any stipend that he wanted. But when Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu passed away, he wanted to see what would be left in his inheritance. And only two things were left that would be given from his inheritance. One was a camel that was used for watering, and another one was a slave that would take care of his children. Those were the only two things left from the inheritance of Abu Bakr. So all of the wealth that he had, he always gave it out to the Muslims. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continued to give him more. And you'll see that the reason behind this was due to his honesty. Back then, when you did business with someone, you were unable to control whether they were going to be honest or treacherous with you. There was no concept of police that if they cheat you, you know, they'll imprison the other individual. But rather you were taking a great risk doing business with someone. And people actually preferred doing business with Abu Bakr because they felt safe and they felt content and they knew that they would not be cheated when they did business with Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. And due to that honesty, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continued to bless his wealth time after time after time, up and until his death. His third virtue was when you give da'wah to an individual, the Prophet ﷺ said that to guide another person to Islam is better than that of red camels. Now this red camel, I guess you could equate it to the nicest car that you can think of. You know, for the longest time, you know, when you think about nice cars, you're always thinking about, you know, having a Ferrari or a Lamborghini of something of that nature. 
But subhanAllah, you know, a couple of years back, uh, I was in the city of Jeddah. And for those of you who have been there, it is a city that has a lot of wealth. And I had come out of a restaurant, and all of a sudden, this like really, really nice car came up. And I was like, you know, what car is this? And it was the first time in my life that I had seen a Bentley. Now, for those of you who know what a Bentley is, you know, mashallah, if there's like a car from Jannah, you know, this is the car. <laughs> like, you know, it has like, you know, individuals have this aura of like luxury and you can tell like this is a person who has a lot of money. Like this car has that very presence that, you know, you could tell that, you know, this is like a rich man's car. It just like shouts out luxury. And I was like, subhanAllah. So like this example the Prophet wasallam is giving is that to guide another person to Islam is to better than have like any Bentley or Ferrari or even combine them together, the car that you would come out with. It's even better than that. And you'll see that Abu Bakr radiallahu an, not only was his lineage blessed, but even the people that he gave da'wah to were blessed as well. Out of the 10 individuals or 10 companions that were specifically promised paradise, seven of them accepted Islam at the hands of Abu Bakr. Seven of them accepted Islam at the hands of Abu Bakr. And keep in mind that the Prophet ﷺ said that whoever guides an individual to a good deed, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give the, 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 the reward of that good deed to the one who guided as well as to the one who did the deed without deple- uh, depleting from his reward. So Allah's Messenger ﷺ, he gave da'wah to Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr gave da'wah to those seven individuals and all of the good deeds that they did are all going into the scales of Abu Bakr and the Prophet ﷺ. And when I think about this, subhanAllah, you know, you don't really choose who you give da'wah to. When you give, have an opportunity, you go and give da'wah to that individual. But if you are sincere and you are a good individual yourself, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts barakah in that da'wah and will make those individuals into great individuals. So they become that investment for you that when you show up on Yom Al-Qiyamah and you're thinking and pondering and wondering, you know, where did these mountains of good deeds come from? You know, I didn't do all any of these deeds. Where are they coming from? And it was all the fact about the da'wah that you gave to other individuals. They did good deeds and on Yom Al-Qiyamah you're showing up with their good deeds without actually having done them. And this just goes on to show you the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that you can earn the rewards without actually doing them. All you have to do is give out a good word, guide another Muslim to something good, guide him to leave off something bad, and the reward is yours for the taking. The sad scenario is that a lot of us are heedless of that very concept. When we get that opportunity to guide someone to do something good, we don't take that opportunity. And when we get that opportunity to prevent them from doing something bad, we don't take that opportunity either. Brothers and sisters, if you do not want to have regret on Yom Al-Qiyamah, hasten towards giving da'wah to people. In terms of his knowledge, by consensus, Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu was the most knowledgeable companion of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, And this is why he was chosen as the next Khalifa. And you will see that there are two incidents in a Muslim's life that he will have literally an infinite amount of questions about. When you study the chapter of Salah, you will see that question after question after question will arise in your mind. And at this time, this is when the Prophet ﷺ chose Abu Bakr to lead the prayer because he was the most knowledgeable. And the second incident where a Muslim will have the most amount of questions is when they go for Hajj. All of a sudden you start thinking of hypothetical scenarios, you start thinking what if this happens, what if that happens, and you want to call someone up. 
And the funny thing is when you go for Hajj and you're trying to get a fatwa or call someone up, it's like everyone that you call on your cell phone, their numbers are busy and you can't even get in touch with anyone. So that's why you're like stuck a lot of the time. Totally different scenario. But this is why the Prophet ﷺ, when the first delegation of Hajj left in the ninth year after the Hijrah, it was led by Abu Bakr. Because he was the most knowledgeable of the companions and he would be able to handle all of their questions. So the Prophet ﷺ showed the amount of knowledge that Abu Bakr had by choosing him for those particular situations. And this is why you see that Abu Bakr was in fact the closest companion of the Prophet ﷺ due to the amount of knowledge that he had. And this brings us into our next quality of Abu Bakr, which are the qualities of leadership. Before an individual becomes a leader, he has to become a good follower. And in order to do that, three criteria need to be met. Number one, you listen and you obey to your leader. You listen and obey to your leader. And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu did this to the best of his ability. Number two, prior to an event, you advise to the best of your ability. And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu gave the best advice that he could possibly give before any event that took place. And the third criteria of a good follower is that after an event takes place, you give positive and constructive criticism. And Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala who did this. Now what raised his status even more was his love for the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And when an individual has love for the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts love in the hearts of the people for that individual. And this is why after the Prophet ﷺ, the companions loved Abu Bakr almost as much as they loved the Prophet ﷺ, just due to the amount of love that he had for the Prophet. And this was seen in the way he dealt with other Muslims. The Prophet ﷺ worked during the days and the nights so that the Muslims could rest. He strived really hard and gave from his wealth whatever he could. And Abu Bakr would do the same so the Muslims wouldn't have to give as much. And he strived hard like the Prophet ﷺ so the Muslims could take it easy. So in following that example, in having true love of the Prophet ﷺ, the Muslims had the exact same amount of love for Abu Bakr. And this brings us to a very interesting point. Everyone fought for the love of the Prophet ﷺ. When it comes to men, you know, love isn't a topic that they discuss very easily. But when it came to the love of the Prophet ﷺ, everyone wanted a bit and a piece of it. So Amr ibn al-As, one day he goes up to the Prophet ﷺ, and you can imagine how embarrassing this is for a man. And he goes up to another man, and he says, Ya Rasulullah, who is the most beloved to you? Who do you love the most? And Amr ibn al-As, he's just come back from a great mission and a great task. And he thinks because he's completed this great mission and task successfully, that he's going to say, Ya Amr, it's you that I love the most. This is the answer that he's hoping for. So he asked the Prophet ﷺ, Ya Rasulullah, who is the most beloved to you? And the Prophet ﷺ, without surprise, he says, Aisha radiallahu anha. So then Amr says, no, 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 not, not out of the women, Ya Rasulullah. I'm talking about out of the men. So he's thinking, okay, now he's going to mention me. Then the Prophet ﷺ goes on to mention her father, Abu Bakr radiallahu an. Then he's like, okay, khalas, you know, Abu Bakr has this noble status, maybe I'll be second. So he says, Ya Rasulullah, then who? Then the Prophet ﷺ mentions Umar. And you can see his heart's like starting to sink right now. But he's like, let me give it one more chance, you know, maybe I'll be third. So then he says, then who, Ya Rasulullah? And then he mentions Uthman. And then Umar at this time is like, khalas, you know, I don't want to embarrass myself anymore. <laughs> let me just end it there. 
But you know, the, a lesson that we learn from this is the amount of love that the, the Prophet ﷺ had for Abu Bakr. That he loved his wife the most, and the individual he loved most after that was her father. There was that close bond, that close relationship that existed between the Prophet ﷺ and Abu Bakr. And you know this actually, as my time is coming to an end, this leads, actually leads us to the death of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. Obviously there are you know, many other benefits and lessons that we can derive. But I just want to give a little bit of time to his death. So I'm going to skip over some of the other virtues. When it came to the death of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, he was Khalifa of the Prophet sallallahu anhu for two and a half years. For two and a half years. So he was born two and a half years after the Prophet sallallahu anhu and he died two and a half years after the Prophet sallallahu anhu the exact date that is mentioned is the 22nd of uh, Jumada al-Akhirah. He died on that day. And, you know, when it comes to the death of the Prophet ﷺ and the death of the companions, it's quite difficult to talk about it. You know, as a man, we don't like to show our emotions in public. And, you know, you try to withhold as much as you can. And I ask for Allah's help in this. But the death of Abu Bakr, how it actually started before, 15 days before his death, he had made ghusl and was going out to the masjid uh, at the time of Fajr. And it was quite cold that day. And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu actually got a cold. And for the next 15 days, Aisha radiallahu anha, she says that Abu Bakr for 15 days had a, had a fever prior to his death. And that was what actually caused the death of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. And something that's always pivotal to notice is that these luminaries of Islam, these great people of Islam, what were their last words? What were their farewell advice? What were their last conversations? And you know, just like how Aisha radiallahu anha was there when the Prophet passed away, she was there when her father Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu passed away as well. And Aisha radiallahu anha, you know, she's there trying to console her father and you know, try to make the most of a, of a bad situation. She asks her father, you know, is there any last request that you want fulfilled? Is there anything that can be done? And Abu Bakr says, yes. He asks Aisha radiallahu anha, you know, how did you bury the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam? No, he asked her, when did the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam die? And uh, she said he died on a Monday. And it was Monday that very day. So Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, he made dua at that time. And he said, Oh Allah, please let me die on the same day uh, that the Prophet sallallahu passed away. The second request that he had made from Aisha radiallahu anha, he asked her, Oh Aisha, how did you bury the Prophet sallallahu And she said that we buried the Prophet sallallahu in three white garments without any turban. So Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu at that time he was already wearing a white garment. And he tells Aisha that, Oh Aisha, you know, on my garment is a stain. Wash that stain off of my garment and bury me in this very shroud with two other garments with it. When the Muslims found out about this, they said, Oh Abu Bakr, the Muslims now have wealth. Why do you not wear more luxurious clothes as you're about to be buried? And at this time he said, you know, the ones who are alive are more deserving of wearing these luxurious clothes. So Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was buried in the very clothes that he was dying in. Wanting to follow and emulate the way of the Prophet sallallahu 
And he told her, Oh Aisha, that between you and me, I lived my life with the Prophet ﷺ, and I would like to, to die with him as well. And bury me next to the Prophet ﷺ. So that place was specified just for him. Now when it came to the last words of Abu Bakr keeping in mind that he was an individual who was promised paradise from the Prophet ﷺ, an individual whom the Prophet ﷺ had said that if you were to weigh his iman against the iman of the whole world, the former would outweigh the latter. His last words passing away from this world were making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The very words from Surah Yusuf where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala quotes Yusuf as saying, Tawaffani Musliman walhiqni bisalihin. That, O oh Allah, let me die as a Muslim and reunite me with the righteous. And when the Prophet ﷺ passed away, and we're going to talk about this later on, inshallah, his dua was to be united with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And when Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu passed away, his dua was, Oh Allah, please let me die as a Muslim. You know, being unsure that he would pass away in Islam or not, he didn't want to be too overconfident. He wanted to make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even as his last words that, Oh Allah, let me die as a Muslim. And putting me in, and put me in the company of the righteous, meaning put me in the company of the Prophet ﷺ, just as you had me in his company in this world. And you look at these words of Abu Bakr and you think, Subhanallah, you know, in our times, as individuals who have no virtue or no merit compared to the companions of Yet how sure we are that you know we're going to be people of paradise, how sure we are that you know, we will have good endings. But here you have an individual who's on his deathbed, he's no, he knows he's about to die, and he's making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Oh Allah, please let me die as a Muslim, and reunite me with the righteous. Brothers and sisters, if you are to leave with no lesson from this lecture, just let it be that. That strive your whole life to be the best Muslim that you can, and never be condescending towards anyone else. And because you do not know if you will die as a Muslim or not. And just like how Abu Bakr did not want to be overconfident, it is your right just as well that you should not be overconfident. Always seek Allah's guidance, even upon your deathbed. Do not think that you will go to paradise. But always seek Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's mercy, and indeed you will find Him merciful. And that is how Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu passed away, the great Khalifa of Islam. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be pleased with him, and elevate his status, and bring about the likes of him again. وآخر دعوانا أن الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته